just before we begin, um, I want to I wanna just take this opportunity to publicly celebrate uh, God's goodness to Jess and I. Um, we're going to celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, just as I'm reflecting on this, um, I am a very fortunate man. And, uh, and God has been so faithful to us over the years. And so I can hardly believe that it's 19 years. And I look at that picture and I'm like, who's that young punk? Up there, that, those were our engagement photos. I think actually that was the photo that we used on the front of our wedding program. And yeah, I haven't aged, we haven't aged a day, right? Like for sure. Anyways, God is good. And uh, you know, and, and like Daryl, I think it was last week with Daryl and Diane and their 40th, like I, we want to celebrate marriage. It's one of the values actually that we have as a church body that, that marriage and family is something that we want to celebrate. And um shine a light on that when God is so good to us. So, um, and I'll say this, like I know many of us, I know Daryl said this to me last week too, like without Jesus, we're not celebrating 19 years. Like we're not, we're, we're not together if not for Jesus. And so the Lord is, it's been so good. Um, so as Dwayne said, I won't kind of reiterate much, but we, we're kicking off this new series that we're in the Beatitudes um, the title that, that uh, we named this series is The Kingdom Manifesto, reason being that this is kind of Jesus' proclamation of his kingdom that is coming and has come. And, and, and it's his way to overthrow the world's way. Jesus is giving us a way that is so remarkably different than the world's way. Um, I also just, so I, I meant to say this actually when I came to, welcome to those of you who are online, so uh, anyone who's online, welcome here, and, and uh, I don't know, happy Thanksgiving too. I got a bunch of stuff I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> there's something else I wanted to say too, but it doesn't matter. Um, so the second beatitude, very, but we're like, I can, I mean, I, I have my Bible open, but we're, we're in one verse today. We're in one verse. We're not reading a bunch, and uh, it's very simple. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, there's a lot there. Um, we, don't, we don't talk much about mourning in the church. Uh, you know, we, I think we kind of leave it when someone close to us passes away, and then we'll kind of go there and we'll talk about it and how, you know, God invites us to mourn. Um, but we don't put much of a focus of, on it otherwise in the church. Um, for any reason, for, like, where people may have reason to mourn for, for just a bunch of different reasons, right? Like uh, a marriage is blown apart. Um, you know, a friendship is lost. Um, just so many areas where we could mourn. The, the definition for mourn, if you look it up in the dictionary, at least this is one of them, is to feel or show deep sorrow or regret for someone or for their death. It's also or to feel regret or sadness about the loss or the disappearance of something. So uh, I mourned the meltdown that was the 2019 Super Bowl for the San Francisco 49ers. I have still not watched the end of that Super Bowl. I went upstairs, I started to do dishes, and I will never, ever watch the end of that Super Bowl. Uh, it was, yeah, it was not good for a San Francisco 49ers fan. 
Some people have been mourning. I'm so glad Chuck is here this morning because I have this in my notes. Some people have been mourning for over 50 years at the ineptitude of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Okay. So in view of reality, I know those are trivial things to mourn about, right? It's also maybe good that we need to laugh a little bit when you tackle something like this morning. But sports exaggerations aside... um, do we really talk about mourning, right? Or, or more importantly, do we allow ourselves to feel sorrow, sadness, regret um, in our lives and accept that to mourn is healthy in our lives and it's a healthy part of our lives? Or, or are we conditioned to t- try to kind of get past or forget about the things that may lead us to mourn, you know, put on a happy face, turn that frown upside down, you know, make sure to present an image that you have what it takes, that you're all together, that you've got thick skin, that nothing rattles you, etc., etc. So, so how do we understand those who mourn here? How do, how do we understand what Jesus is saying here? The, the verb implies mourning that is present and active in our lives. It's not something that's in the past. It's a present thing. The Greek word here translated uh, can be translated mourn or grieve or sadness, uh, mainly mourning. It's, it's one of the strongest words for grief that can be used in the Greek language. It speaks of piercing sorrow and passionate grief. Passionate grief. It's speaking to those things that we encounter in life that are deeply distressing, things that leave a mark on us. And this is what's so interesting here is that Jesus doesn't invite us to just tolerate mourning in our lives. He says that those who mourn are blessed, that they're in sync with the kingdom of God and his reign. Again, like I said last week, what he's saying is those who mourn are given a right on. I I think that there's an aspect of that where that hardly processes in the hard drives of our minds. Those who mourn, those who are in a state of mourning are in sync with the reign of Jesus. See, this could be the most problematic beatitude for us to accept, much less desire to embody in our lives. Like, you want me to embody mourning in my my life. Is that what you're telling me, Jesus? To embrace this naturally in our lives is something good and helpful? Like, if you're not sure about this right now, I get it. I do. Like, I get it. Like, really, Jesus? But Jesus says this is his way that will lead to the good life in his kingdom. Remember, yes, those who mourn will be comforted, but these beatitudes are bookended by, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the point of that is, every single one of them you're meant to read also, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So you're, like, blessed, if you are in this state, you're getting the good life of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is suggesting. 
And yeah, the world offers a radically different alternative, right? What, what were some of the things the world might say that like in rather than this? Blessed are those who work through hard work, achieve success. Blessed are those who through diligent focus attain their personal goals. Blessed are those who through planning experience Freedom 55. Blessed are those who through education and effort are hired for their dream job. For they will be comforted. As a result of what? Their good fortune, their willpower. That's the world. Right on. Get after it. That is what will comfort you. That's what the world says. Now, you go, okay, are all those alternative visions dangerous? Like, are they just just bad and sinful? Like, you shouldn't have any effort? You shouldn't have any diligent focus in your life? Like, well, no, that doesn't make sense. But those kind of belief systems have powerful potential if they are internalized and embraced to mislead our hearts away from Jesus. And they leave people feeling a tremendous amount of pressure. Like those things, that, there is so much pressure with that in this world. And, and they, they leave us with tremendous shame and questions of worth if we don't meet the mark. Well, and many don't because they can't. Like I've been seeing lately, I've been, um, when I've been watching some football, I've been seeing these running Audi commercials. And like it is like they are just projecting this dream life. As if like everyone can own a $125,000 vehicle. And this is just like, this is the good life. And I'm like, Whoa, like it's so interesting to think about what they're telling you and the pressure of attaining that and that you should somehow, this should be you. And I'm like, that's like 0.00001% of the world. And it doesn't leave you comforted. Another way to look at this. What is the question that everyone is asking and that Jesus is answering in the Beatitudes, in in this one as well? The question is, what will satisfy and sustain us? That's the question that everyone's asking in their lives. What's going to satisfy? What's going to sustain me? That's the question that Jesus is answering in these Beatitudes. Jesus is revealing the qualities that will emerge in our lives as the kingdom of God is taking hold of our lives. We don't try to produce these qualities to try and prove that we're good enough or that we've met the mark or that we somehow attain to it. And then, and then we, we get to gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven because now we're, we're there. That's not it. It's as the kingdom of heaven grabs hold of us, we begin to experience a very different perspective for our lives. So why does Jesus highlight mourning as something positive? I think one of the reasons, at least, is because as much as we may want to try and ignore it, pain, grief, and loss are part of the human condition. And as much as we might try and insulate ourselves, we cannot avoid it. And denial of it will bring incredible harm into our lives. 
So the first beatitude speaks of us admitting our utter helplessness, the poor in spirit before God, while really the second now speaks of those who pursue vulnerability and dare to feel the pain of life. Jesus said, and when he was speaking to his disciples in John, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. What's the next thing of that part of that verse? With an exclamation point. Yeah, Jen knows. What is it? But take heart. I have what? I've overcome the world. Matthew 28 at the end where he says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Psychologist Keith Cruel says, sadness is a launching pad to growth. One basic observation here, too, kind of connected to that. This beatitude not only gives us permission, but it invites us to grieve in our lives. It's not something to ignore or avoid. Grief, as hard as it is, it will not kill you. In fact, it's the suppression, it's the denial of grief that is the thing that kills people. Grief itself will not kill you. Jesus is saying that his comfort comes as a result of us opening and bearing our hearts. It's vulnerability. So, why is mourning a sign that the gospel is taking root and Jesus' way is grabbing hold in our lives? And I want to highlight three reasons this morning. That's kind of where I want to camp for the rest of our time. And that is, I want to look at the reality of sin I want to talk about how it's, it reveals that we're drawing close to Jesus' heart and mourning or grieving for what is. So the reality of sin. As the kingdom grabs hold in our lives and we experience more of Jesus' presence in our lives, we encounter the reality that there's sin in our lives. It's not because Jesus comes and starts telling you, oh, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're, he doesn't do that. Jesus, there's not one, not one example, not one instance in the Gospels where he says to someone, you're a sinner. Right, he didn't, he didn't, he allowed people in his presence to realize what was going on inside of them. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well. It's simply Jesus' presence that brings us to see the reality of sin in our lives. That's the thing. Like, you can encounter Jesus' presence in worship and go, all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I've got this, there's sin exposed in me. And, and this is also, this is the, the reason, folks, why we may resist deeper intimacy with Jesus. Because we don't enjoy the truth about our sin. And we be very well be fearful of what will happen when we encounter sin in the presence of Jesus because if we don't believe that he's a loving and trusting God faithful and that we have a loving father we may be really scared of going there this is not to condemn shame or guilt anyone about sin it's not that that's spiritual abuse but to understand the depth and the seriousness of our sin and our inclination to cover sin in our lives 
It's necessary if we are to experience true freedom and healing in Jesus. To minimize, deny, or avoid the reality of our sin, it produces a a pseudo-like faith that's marked by performance, it's marked by legalism, appearance. That, That was the condition of the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked and went after time and time again because they gave this image that they had it. And Jesus is like, you're like whitewashed tombs. So the ongoing battle that we have with sin in our lives, the stuff that we know, tendencies, behaviors, reactions, etc., right? The deeper battle that we have with generational sin in our families, there's, there's even like genetic predispositions to sin and past hurt. All of that is real. And it brings us to experience sorrow. There's grief. There's trauma. There's actually this new research in the field of epigenetics that has been exploring the impact of trauma on, on subsequent generations and families. And I, I've been doing some reading about this lately. It's so fascinating and yet so sobering. This is, this is what it kind of what it talks about. The idea is that trauma can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes, which then is passed down to subsequent generations. The mark doesn't directly damage the gene. There's no mutation. Instead, it alters the mechanism by which the gene is converted into functioning proteins or expressed. The alteration isn't genetic, it's epigenetic. So, and there's other fields of research right now that are exploring the impact of trauma, its connection to mental health issues, addiction, other societal problems. The point of all that is that the reality of sin in our world, in us, is deep and pervasive. But the increase of Jesus's, and the increase, I should say, and the increase of Jesus' presence uncovers and reveals sin in our lives and its impact in our lives. And that produces grief. I, I, I know that if I was not a follower of Jesus, if I had walked away from Jesus at 19 and never returned to following the way of Jesus and just started to live my own way in the world, I would not have nearly the amount of understanding of what's going on inside of me and the sin that I need to deal with. I wouldn't even, I, I, I fully believe I'd be able to just, just smooth it over, perform, appear a certain way. Jesus says we are in sync with his kingdom in the midst of this. It's a sign, actually, that Jesus' way has a hold on us. You go, well, how can that be? It means that we're in reality. It means we're not hiding and that we desire to be set free and healed. That, that's, that's the place. When we're in that place, That's the place that reveals another reason the gospel is taking root in us. It's actually the place where it's a good place to be. Is it hard? Does it bring sorrow? Does it bring grief? Yes, but it is the place to be with Jesus. Second reason that we mourn, and it's a sign that the gospel is taking root in us, and that is that we're drawing close to Jesus' heart. Yes, 
Jesus offers us fullness of joy in his presence. Psalm 16, right? Scripture speaks of unrestrained joy and gladness in God's presence. The promise that we will lack nothing in eternity. That is the glorious truth and hope of Scripture. But on this earth, there's the reality of mourning due to grief and sorrow, and Jesus experienced it as well. Isaiah 53, when it speaks of Jesus prophetically, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus didn't run from sorrow and grief. He allowed himself to feel and to enter into the hard stuff of life. When it speaks of Jesus having compassion on the crowds that he sees in Matthew 9 there, it says that because he, he saw they were without a shepherd, when that word there speaks of compassion, you know what that word literally means? His guts were ripped open. Like it wasn't like, oh, I kind of feel bad for these people. No, no, it wasn't that. It was anguish. It was deep anguish of what he saw the people were going through. When Jesus arrived at the tomb where Lazarus' body where it was and before he raised him from the dead, it's the shortest verse in the New Testament, right? He wept. That whole scenario there with Lazarus, Jesus is overcome with emotion and grief. In, in Luke 19, when Jesus prays over the city of Jerusalem there, the wording speaks to Jesus heaving with the soul cry of agony. It's, it's not like, it's deep. It's deep mourning. You understand that there is a sense when we begin to understand Jesus that there's a sense in which God mourns over this world and the effect of sin. And when we get close to Jesus, we are moved in the same way. In John 16, Jesus speaks of the reality of grief that we will experience. And it seems to be when he's speaking about it there, both in reference to his death, but it's also he's speaking to kind of a wider sense on this earth of, of what we're going to experience. But Jesus promises there, he says, your grief will turn to joy. And the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6, right? And he's, he's listing there, all the things that he's experienced. Like you, you read that list of what he encountered and you're like, man, this guy knew grief and sorrow and pain. He knew it. And yet he says at the end, like, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. But within the context of what he's saying there, there's, and he talks about it, how to the Corinthians, like we've opened our hearts wide open to you. Like there's this, you're getting the sense that Paul lived in a way where his heart was open. And because of that, there was grief. Jess and I, we've talked about this over the years, that in some of the, the youth ministry, some of the, the girls that she walked with really close over the years, that she, you know, and this is just the type of person that Jess is, she opened up her heart and she got really hurt. Because that's part of what happens. It's part of what happens in church, actually, when we open up our hearts. We get hurt at times. 
So is that the reason to like shut down, lock down our hearts? The gospel would say no. Third reason why mourning is a sign that the gospel is taking root in our lives. And that is grieving for what is. This is especially pertinent right now, isn't it? We, we have experienced so much in the last 18 months and counting that leaves us with grief and sorrow. One of the questions that I keep asking myself, I keep putting before myself, keep reminding myself, how can this draw me closer to Jesus? But it doesn't change the current experience that is causing grief. You know, I'll say the, the latest round of restrictions, which I've now had a week to kind of just think about, feels grievous to me. And I'm not trying to convince anyone one way or the other. Like, I, 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 I'm not a doctor, obviously. You know, I, I, it seems that the COVID vaccine helps mitigate symptoms of COVID. Um, it helps in the mitigating effects of COVID. Just talking to more people this week, just through conversation and hearing more stories about people who have really suffered locally with COVID, like people who I know. And uh, in fact, I was talking to someone who has been, was a long hauler and has been miraculously healed, either through a combination of the vaccine or the Lord. This is someone that, I, that we know, Jess and I know. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know him well enough to kind of know um, all the things, but I learned more this week. And um, one of the people that we know said that the, when they, they, they brought this person in to pray for them a while back, at that point when they were going through the effects of COVID, they didn't hardly recognize them as a person. So that's that. But when you have restrictions that seem punitive in nature towards those who feel a particular way about a vaccine, that grieves me. And it's also not my job to assess whether or not someone should have the vaccine. It's not my job to do that. It's none of our jobs to do that, actually. And I think the shift that we're experiencing should at the very least alarm us. That is, that we are judging in our culture now, in our society, who is worthy of our sympathy and care. And you see it in the attitudes of people. Global News this week, they had a social media post. It says this, this Thanksgiving, it's smarter not inviting your unvaccinated relatives. Sorry, it's the smart, safer, smarter, and more ethical option. Okay, I, I don't, I don't, like, I don't want to make this about my opinions either. I, I'm just, I'm trying to assess what's going on, both as an individual, as a pastor. But I want to ask a logical question and invite us to really process this logically. If I'm vaccinated and believe that that helps protect me against the virus, and will help mitigate symptoms in the event that I contract the virus, realizing that I can still contact and transmit the virus, 
while being vaccinated, why would I be afraid or even hostile against those who aren't vaccinated? Aren't they putting themselves more at risk? So why would I be afraid and why would I even give an inch to restrictions that discriminate against others? Okay, I know that we have a wide berth of opinions on all this. So we have a huge challenge before us as the body of Christ and in LCF. The idea that we should separate from people or distance ourselves from people who aren't vaccinated or that it's perfectly reasonable to break from a church because leaders aren't aligning with my opinions or they're asking me to wear a mask. Like our biological families, our church family is going to have issues that come up. We're going to have many different opinions right now about what is right now. Right? About grieving about what is right now. And there's many factors that are bringing grief into people's lives. And, and so in all this, I want to please, I want to soberly, I want to implore us to soberly assess in the midst of this, how are we doing as disciples of Jesus and to his way? How are we loving and caring for one another, not just those who align with our opinions or our choices. And why would I ever think, this is the thing that, that just I'm wrestling with, why would I ever think that to treat one group as more valuable, safe, or acceptable is okay as a follower of Jesus? I, I heard a really challenging word around this on bitterness this week. And regardless of where you land on all this, like the tyrants are trying to force a vaccine on me. Okay, that's like one extreme. To um, why are those unvaccinated people trying to murder everyone else? I mean, okay, that's, that's an extreme position. Or whether you're somewhere in the middle of that wide expanse, wherever you are, are we considering the danger of bitterness in all this? Bitterness towards them, bitterness towards them, bitterness towards them, them, them. And I will admit that there is much of this that grieves me and is impacting me as a pastor, folks. Uh, much that grieves me. I am so, at times, so disheartened by what I'm hearing and encountering, specifically in the church. Second commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not dependent on their vaccination status. I, I want us as a church to think about how the latest restrictions actually come against that commandment. It's a commandment. To think that I'm breaking the law if I don't ask for a person's vaccination status before I allow them into my home, 
in the midst of this, we must keep the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus before us. We must. That the schemes of Satan to bring division and chaos and bitterness and all sorts of other evil would be seen for what they are. I think perhaps this means being affected way less than the cycle of the news media because, man, they are wanting to drive stuff, folks. Like, got to be far less affected by the agendas. And there is a multitude of agendas out there and how they desire to shape opinions. And they can. They do shape opinions. It's a scientific fact that if, depending on what you're in, inviting in, you, your opinions will be shaped. How do we align with the kingdom of heaven and the way of Jesus in these days? These are questions that we can put before ourselves. What does scripture say and call us to do? How do we live missionally and with a heart for people amidst all this? How do we make room for different opinions, hearing one another, loving one another, being honest about our grief? Like what if we're able to rise above the divide that many around us are perpetrating and embracing and rather to be gripped by the reality of people all around us who do not know Jesus? Or are we more gripped by the vaccination status of people or that I have to wear a mask when I come into church? I was talking to another friend of mine this week. He says, can you imagine? He says, I've heard this story that you're going to pick up a Chinese pastor from the underground church in China and you're bringing him to your church for service. And on the way, he's talking about some of these people that he's, he's known about in your congregation and he's excited to meet them finally. And uh, you're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not actually going to be there. Why? Well, they, they don't like that they have to wear masks. Just think about that. What if we can rise above the divide? What if we as a church intentionally make a decision to feel the grief of this reality and respond with God's heart. This is not about my opinions. I'm not trying to put forth my opinion. I'm trying to ask sobering questions in light of scripture and in light of what the way of Jesus and not by what, by what the culture around us wants to tell us. For they will be comforted. That's the last part of this beatitude. This is, the, this is the, the last part of this beatitude. This is the hope that we need so badly when it comes to the presence of grief in our lives, right? Like, like there's just, there's this heaviness of sorrow right now that I think we can be honest about in the culture. This is the promise from Jesus that doesn't just bring great hope, but actually in, it includes the promise of healing, we all experience grief. We all experience loss in our lives. And whether or not we realize it, we're all looking for comfort. The question is, 
Where do we look to for our comfort? That might, that might actually be one of the most important questions right now in our culture that we're navigating. Where do we look to for comfort? You know, I, I, I want to, yeah, I don't, I don't, I want to, there was a story I wanted to talk about, but I don't think, I don't want to take the time. But th- there's a willingness in our culture right now actually to embrace more of an empathy when it comes to mental health, when it comes to weaknesses. Um, more, there's, there seems to be more room for vulnerability, especially around mental health issues. And it's, it's really, it's good. Like empathy is healthy. But the question that arises out of all this is really crucial is where are we looking to then for our growth, healing, and comfort? And it seems like the culture, even very subtly, will tell you to look within yourself, to look to the power of self, to what you have internally to overcome, and what resides inside of us. So where we look to for our comfort amidst grief is really paramount and crucial. So... You know, there's, there's the comfort to come, right? That we, the, the hope, the promise that we have, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what's coming, folks. That's the hope. But what about the here and now? That's, we need that as well. The Greek word here for comfort is parakaleo. Now, if you're wondering if that sounds familiar, it's a verb that comes from the noun paraclete. Paraclete is the word that Jesus assigns as one of the names for the Holy Spirit. In John 14, the paraclete will come to you. The comforter, the counselor, the helper. It's the spirit of Jesus coming alongside of us in the here and now. You know, some of you know, um, I've lived through a very difficult upbringing due to dysfunction and brokenness in my parents' marriage, many separations of various lengths alongside a very tumultuous and... um, chaotic home environment left me with a fair bit of trauma to work through. And again, it's, it's as I've come to Jesus that you begin to uncover more of that rather than just bury it. And I, and I found healing in my life to be a process that's happened in, in large spurts at times, but also gradually. And it seems like there's this time in the process of spiritual maturity has a way of bringing up stuff actually that we never realized was there. Like as we, as we grow, the Lord will bring stuff or allow things or as we go deeper, Jesus, more things will come up and you go, oh. And it's like things that we have not made connections with for years. This is what utterly blows me away sometimes with the Holy Spirit. Lately, this blew me away. The, the Holy Spirit made a connection to me in an instant. In an instant. And I, and I texted Jess with some stuff, and I, and I said, this is what I feel like the Lord's revealing to me. She's like, yeah, I was wondering about that. I just didn't want to say anything because I wanted the Lord to bring it up to you. Oh. So there, there's a lot that I've been healed from 
right? And, and a lot of us, we, there's a lot that we've been healed from or partially healed in. We've, we've received the healing of Jesus. I know, I know that I have received the incredible work, healing, the healing power of Jesus in my life. But there's still lots of work to be done in me. And because it's an ongoing process over life, in my life, there's mourning and there's grief that I experience. Because I, I, I cannot change aspects of my childhood that have imprinted certain things into me. None of us can. Can't change that. We've all got stories. We've all got experiences that leave us with grief and sorrow to work through. But the promise of God's comfort and his, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it invites us to receive healing. So I, I don't, as I end this morning, I don't want to provide a bunch of like how to overcome mourning types of suggestions. Um, although I, I do believe in times of sorrow and loss, and I have to be reminded of this continuously, to operate in patterns of gratitude and thanksgiving, like to operate being grateful intentionally and thankful intentionally is really, really important. Reminding ourselves what God has done and what he promises to do to sustain us. But here's the thing. We also actually have to embrace grief and sorrow to receive healing and growth in our lives. As a psychologist said, sadness is a launching point for growth. It's true. So I want to invite us this week into an exercise that can be really powerful to help us apply this in our lives as we end and, that, and to allow Jesus to speak to us. And it's kind of within the realm of emotionally healthy discipleship. Uh, it's inviting you to explore the iceberg in your life, right? The analogy that 10% of your life is on top and can be seen, and, but like 90% of what's going on inside of you and who you are is underneath the surface and can't be seen, but is part of the bigger whole that's impacting you. Sort of that, that uh, analogy. So in that sort of realm, these are some questions that I want to leave you with to put before the Lord and ask Jesus and allow Jesus to speak to us because I think this is, can be powerful to allow us to dialogue with the Lord and to see what's going on inside of us. And that is just four really simple questions. What are you angry about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? As an, there's an option to this too. If you feel like you have a trusted, safe, personal friend that will push you to Jesus, uh, you, could have, you could have them ask you those questions and then allow yourself to dialogue with them and, just, and, and, and answer those with them and, and hear yourself dialogue. Sometimes that can be helpful if, if we're... And if you're not there, like I, like, I totally get that. This, th these, these are not sometimes always, these questions themselves, as we process them, um, can leave us actually with grief. But God is the one who brings healing and comfort. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that
You are a father who loves us. You are completely and eternally trustful and faithful and good. And you love us. You call us the beloved. Lord, I want to also thank you that you invite us into this process of mourning and grief. You invite us to not just tolerate it, but to embrace it and to see it as a way that can bring tremendous growth in our lives. And Jesus, I recognize that this can be very hard, can be very difficult and painful in certain things. And so Jesus, I want to pray for your comfort this week over us, over your people, and in the days to come. Lord, we're navigating days that are different than anything we've ever experienced, and we need your, your presence with us. We are so desperate for that. Lord, help us to love well. Help us to love you well. Help us to love one another well. Lord, help us to rise above the divide. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.